Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Journalist and activist Desiree Cooper is going to join us today to talk about her new book, Nothing Special. It's a children's book that looks at the intergenerational connections that, for African Americans, reach back to the Great Migration and forward to the Black return to southern cities in modern times. It is a fascinating look at history and the present, and we'll unpack it next with stories from me and Desiree and from you, our listeners. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. On 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. If you really want to get me going about something, you can do one really easy thing ask me about my grandparents. I'm talking about my mom's mom and dad here. They lived in Detroit like I did when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in Russell Woods, and they were constant fixtures in my life. Day off from school, well, you're going to go stay with grandma and granddad. Mom's going out of town, that's where you're going to stay. And constantly. If we needed dinner, if we just wanted to talk, that's where we went. They were always there. And so many of the things that I know or understand about the world came through the conversations and the interactions and the experiences that I had with them. And they're kind of frozen in my mind. These two figures doing all of these great things They were like superheroes to me. And for a lot of people, that's true. We get to see the world through the eyes of our grandparents and the people who came before us. It's a window into both the past and present, an opportunity to interpret things slightly differently and also, in some ways, the same. And of course, this is how we pass down traditions and references and meaning to people like us. We develop novel connections and peer into the universe through these intergenerational relationships. Our grandparents always offer that kind of different perspective, but it's even more different if they grew up and lived in different places than we did. For many African-Americans who live in cities like Detroit, our grandparents grew up in the South. And a lot of them, like my grandparents, grew up in the Jim Crow South. That's how we got to places like Detroit. My grandparents brought our family here in the late 1950s, looking for, of 
course, opportunity. And that connection to the states below the Mason-Dixon line leaves a lot of us wanting to more clearly understand what life was like in those spaces for those who came before us, what cultural practices and social relationships and rituals existed, especially beyond the surface level prejudices that many of us learned about in school and in stories from our grandparents. What was it like being in those spaces? Desiree Cooper has written about all of this in the new children's book, Nothing Special. Now, Desiree does so many things. She's an activist and a journalist. She's a fiction writer and a poet. And in this recent book, she explores the link between grandparents and grandchildren, northern and southern ties, the Great Migration, and the reverse migration of many black folks who are moving back south these days. We wanted to talk to her about all of these topics and have her talk with you, our listeners. And so I am very pleased to welcome Desiree Cooper back to Detroit today. Desiree, it is really great to have you here. I am so done. That was like, you have just covered the whole landscape of, of, of the book and the story. I have tears in my eyes. Aww. Absolutely, Stephen. You just totally like nailed the whole mental space that I've been inhabiting like for the last couple of years. And I, I really appreciate um, being able to come on and talk about it more. Yeah. So, so um, as I say, you do a lot of things, uh, journalism, poetry, flash fiction. I mean, you defy every label uh, somebody might want to put on you and, and restrict <laughs> you to one thing. But, but I'm really curious about you writing a children's book and using that vehicle of the children's uh, literature for a story like this. It's such an unusual approach. So, so, so tell me how you came up with this. Well, I, I sort of wish it was my idea, but it wasn't. I was at um, a writer's retreat in 2018, and I was having writer's block on the things that I thought I wanted to write about. And Marilyn Nelson, who is a well-decorated veteran writing poetry and, and for children, um, said to me, well, why aren't you writing for children? And... I just kind of looked at her like, what do you, yeah, what, why am I not writing for children? <laughs> and um, so I spent the rest of that retreat just trying to get a concept down on paper um, that I might want to talk about. And the thing that came into my mind most in that moment was the friendship between my dad and my grandson. So the book that he, that is out now is between um, grandfather and grandson, but this was actually a friendship of great-grandfather and great-grandson, which mm. is even more incredible. Um, so that was, that was how Nothing Special got started. And, um, you know, in the years, you, people think their children's books are short and so they're easy, but <laughs> years in the making. There's no such and, thing as easy um, writing. <laughs> no, and in in the years that followed, um, that relationship deepened, but then COVID came and the two 
were separated. Um, if we all remember the early times of COVID where we were terrified for our elders and um, did not want to come anywhere near them. The nursing homes were actually the first incubators for the virus. Um, I have fingerprints that I only recently uh, wiped away from windows in the front of my house mm-hmm. where my my dad had his hand in the window looking at the kids outside playing. Wow. You know, because he couldn't go, you know, I didn't let them be together. He died in 2020, uh, non-COVID related. And part of my thinking was if I had known he would be gone at the end of that year anyway, would I have kept them apart? You know, that's kind of a sadness that I, that I, I still hold to this day. But out of that came a deepening of the story um, of what exactly did my dad bring into our lives and um, what is it that we'll, we will all carry, you know, going forward. So nothing special does operate on that level of intergenerational um, friendships mm-hmm. and families and the great role that grandparents have played, I think, especially if, the, if COVID taught us nothing else, it, it taught us that we need to live a lot more in extended family situations because you can't juggle all this stuff when the systems break down sure. without extra hands. But also what happens when um, families do break down under these kinds of stresses and it's the grandparents that often step in and become primary in kids' lives. So um, that's nothing new to black families. Um, we've been living like that for a long time, except when we couldn't. (laughs) And that would be when we were snatched from Africa, Mm -hmm. when we were enslaved. And then it happened again um, with the Great Migration, where we broke those family ties looking for opportunity elsewhere. So all of that is in in the pictures and in the (laughs) words. In, In a happy little story, that if you're not paying um, deep attention is a happy story that we need um, between two black men, one six and one eighty six. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to talk a lot more about those themes, of course, uh, during the conversation here, but I I, want to pause just for a second and talk about the images that are in this Mm -hmm. book. They are Mm -hmm. pretty amazing. And I know, our audience can't see them. So I'd like you to try to describe what this book kind of feels like and what the characters look like. I I do want to say, Stephen, that as proud as I am of the story, the illustrations are stratospheric. Yes. And (laughs) um, this illustrator, Beck Sloan is her name. She's out of New Jersey. And I sent her, so I never met her. We worked on this book over the course of uh, a couple of years. Never met her until the book launch <laughs> last month, face to face. So we work virtually. Um, I sent her reference photos of my family, and it, ha- it was spooky, exhilarating, haunting, stunning to see my family just spring to life literally in these pages. The images are all handmade. She's a fabrication artist. Um, She went out and gathered textiles from all over the place. She likes repurposed 
te- uh, textiles. She doesn't call it recycling. Um, and she makes what she would not call puppets, but what I'm going to say, just so that the audience can kind of visualize it, puppets of all the characters. But she also, like, built her house made the trees, handmade <laughs> the flowers, blossom by blossom. The grass is handmade. Um, things that look like they're made out of wood are made out of corduroy. Um, she carved crabs out of balsa wood. She carved corn cobs out of balsa wood and then wrapped them in fabric. The sea is fabric. The clouds are fabric. The stars in the sky, you know those silicone, um, those little silicone packets you get, especially with electronics, mm-hmm, like to mm-hmm. keep the, everything dry and moisture away? She cut that open and scattered that across a dark landscape to photograph them as stars. I'm like, wow. really? Can't you just like <laughs> Photoshop and pinpoint a star? Really? <laughs> she was like, no. And she, she literally made everything and photographed it. So... We talk about this book um, from on a marketing side of being a picture book for ages three to seven. I think, though, that the art takes it far past that seven age um, and even adults because the depth of the images is so astonishing. You can look at this book over and over and see a different thing every time you go through. And then we also laid Easter eggs is what we call it. to our family history and the great migration story um, are embedded in the images. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things, one of the earliest things, I guess, that I can remember about my grandparents is is things that they did um, that I were, were the first time I had ever experienced those things, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, so much of the world, as I understand it in a really rudimentary way is about mm-hmm. things I saw them doing. And and a great example, I think, is uh, my grandmother had these prized rose bushes in her in her backyard. Um, and of course, we were to stay out of that part of the yard, right? Don't be over there mm-hmm. messing around. But uh, there's also this this image I have that I can never shake of her with these gloves on and a pruner, uh, you know, shaping her her rose bushes, and it was the first mm-hmm. time for me um, that I, I saw a, somebody caring for 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 a garden that way. We didn't have a garden at mm-hmm. our house, uh, but she did, and she was always uh, back there with these gloves and that pruner, uh, shaping these roses. Uh, and in the book, you write about a lot of activities that Jax, the protagonist in the book, learns from his grandparents. It's one of the great, uh, I think, very relatable parts of the book. So let's talk about these things that they do together and why those activities, those things that Jax learns from his great-grandfather really matter. Yeah, well, I think that we all have struggled generationally to like kind of keep what's precious, precious and pass it down. And that has been in the face of technological change, industrialization, urbanization. And so a lot of things end up just being folklore or um, things that kids might encounter at school or in books and they're not real to them. And I think that um, part of, 
what Detroiters, African Americans in the North, are doing when they go back home, and and they say go back home, even though they may not have ever actually lived in Georgia or Mississippi, but they're going home, is to get back in touch with um, with slow living and with things that really matter, like the gardening that you mentioned. You know, um, just plucking things out of the land is like. I mean, kids love going back and like, just go pull me a tomato, you know, go get a cucumber. Mm -hmm. And they go to their backyard and not to a store to do that. And in the book, I just try to pick out um, a couple of examples that might be uh, universal or unique, but still relatable. So one is going crabbing, like actually, um, Jackson, my my dad, both Virginians now. Jackson is now, he was born in Detroit, but he's a Virginian <laughs> now. And um, that is something that is huge in this um, this area of the country, is going mm-hmm. crabbing, eating crabs. Um, he never actually did that with my dad, but he has gone fishing. And so that's um, something else, you know, that's relatable. Also, mm-hmm. like building your own fun and that's like making a handmade kite and let's just experiment and see if it flies and see how well it stacks up against store-bought things and like let's shuck corn like what is this what's the husk what's the corn silk you know and Mm -hmm. um you know so it's it's doing those low-tech things that also take so much time that you have to talk through it you know so other conversations happen. I mean, there's probably nothing slower in the world than fishing. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get a crab. So it's not about that. It's not about what you get out of the water. It's all that time that's spent waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's what I want to kind of point to as things that we can we can replicate no matter where we are. But it's also this special thing I think that older people bring into younger people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue talking with Desiree Cooper about her new children's book, Nothing Special. We are going to talk uh, in a little more detail about the Great Migration and the connection between uh, African Americans who went north and those who stayed south, how that plays into the narrative uh, of her book and, of course, into the narrative of so many of our lives. We also want to get going with you on the phones and on Twitter. Do you have strong ties to your grandparents? Did you have strong ties to your grandparents? Uh, Are you an African-American who lives here in Detroit, but your parents or grandparents came here from the South during the Great Migration? Talk about the stories you heard or hear from them about that and how they help you understand your space, your place in the world. Uh, As always, we want to hear from you on the phones, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Of course, we especially want to hear from people great stories that they remember about their grandparents. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest this hour is Desiree Cooper. She's a journalist and activist, uh, many other things as well. She has recently written a children's book, Nothing Special, which takes a look at that really special relationship that so many of us have with our grandparents. Uh, She also puts it in the context of... Uh, the African-American journey in this country, literally uh, from south to north, uh, but also over time, the things that have changed uh, for black existence in in this country. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us, uh, whoever you are, about your grandparents and the influence they had or have over you. What are the things that you can remember learning from your grandparents? What are the things that you can remember connecting with them over? Uh, If you're African-American, tell us about how maybe your grandparents brought your family to this city as part of the Great Migration and uh, what you learned about our history uh, from them talking about that journey or their lives uh, in the American South. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Desiree, I want to start here with uh, that that. Uh, journey that I was just uh, referring to, Um, the journey from south to north, the journey back that many people are taking now, and and why that's such an important part uh, of the relationship between uh, so many African Americans and uh, and our grandparents. It it, it really is, um, it's not the backdrop. I feel like it's the foundation in many ways. Uh, for the things that we hear and and learn from them. Yeah, I, I've heard people call Detroit up south. Yes, uh, and all there's the time. a reason for that. <laughs> That's right. Literally. You know, I'm, yeah. So we left. We left. Uh, you know, a geography in search. Well, we were run out by terrorism and apartheid. Yes. Um, and we we came north for opportunity, but we did not leave our family, our culture, and if we could help it, our land. Um, we remained Southerners from from home, and we recreated the South and the North, <laughs> you know, to nurture us and to keep us culturally connected. Um, I often say that. Um, you know, nostalgia for Americana is the rooster, the fields of grain, the farmhouse. But black nostalgia is about the home going. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about going back home to the South. It's so interesting to me that it's still referred to as home, even by generations that never lived there. But, uh, 
people keep going back to the actual the church home homecomings. Um, often, black churches have a, a welcome in typically in the summer in August of people that were from that area to come back and worship again and have picnics and things like that, or family reunions. Stephen, I was doing some research and before the pandemic. Um, Traveling to a family reunion was the number one reason for African-Americans to travel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even that is culturally laden. You know, um, why make a risk of going somewhere that you don't know when, first of all, you can deal with the devil, you know, you know how to get to Georgia and back safely now after all these decades. And, you know, when you get there, you can be safe because you're going to be with family. So that, that ties into the green book. It ties into just how we have do these well-worn paths uh, just to avoid um, harassment or worse as we travel. Now that's been blown open. There's a whole trend now about black people traveling and black people going internationally and living internationally. But it's just stunning to me that all the way up until about 2017, 2018, the main reason a black person would go on vacation would, would be to go to a family reunion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is not just you know, about Tyler Perry and Medea and, you know, the funny jokey <laughs> things that happen at family reunions. It is about preservation of our land, our culture, our people. And those ties, you know, remain strong. Now, my dad um, was in the later part of the Great Migration. He was born in the Depression in the 30s. So when he was coming of age, he left the Jim Crow South here in Virginia and enlisted in the military. Uh, that was in 1954, hmm. and that was another avenue um, for African Americans. So many didn't go north, or even by then people were going west, but also the enlistment in the military was definitely a way to escape Absolutely. Uh, Jim Crow. And so that's also depicted in the book, um, Pop Pop in the Book, wears a veteran's hat the entire um, story. Mm-hmm. And um, it's sort of another one of those Easter eggs that are, that's in the story that people will recognize. Oh, yeah, he went into the military uh, to make a better life for his kids. But even he, he was career Air Force. He came right back and bought a forever home mm-hmm. 50 miles away from the place he was born and away from where his family was enslaved. Wow. So he came back home. Yeah. And started a family reunion that is now, uh, I think this coming year will be 46 or 47 years that wow. we've had this family reunion. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, I want to read a couple social media comments. Carl says, honored to live with and care for my grandma in the last year of her life. She died at 101 at the start of the COVID shutdown. She was the most godly and optimistic person I have ever known. She taught me that every day is a blessing and to always be thankful for what I have. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, unfortunately for me, like many others, I had a set of grandparents that didn't want to talk about some of the stories of the things they went through because of the negativity. They did teach me good manners, self-respect, and etiquette, and for that, 
I'm forever grateful. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones, and you can hashtag us on Twitter if you want to participate. Let's go to Aaron in Ypsilanti. Aaron, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen, and I guess. Hey. Uh, great topic. So my, my grandparents, I'm African-American, my grandparents came up from the South. Um, I'm, my dad's side from Louisiana, my mom's side from Alabama, and they came up seeking a better opportunity, of course, Escape me Jim Crow as well. I remember hearing some of their stories growing up. And it was just so different. It was like a world away a world away compared to my, you know, reality at the time as a teen. Mm-hmm. And um <clears throat> I'm just very thankful that they did that. So I had a chance to go to Louisiana and visit some of my extended family and see how they were living and see where my grand my grandparents came from. I'm just thankful for, you know, the sacrifice that they made. Yeah. And was, you know, growing up in Detroit, you know, you don't it's not it's a you know urban environment of course, so I remember saying, you know, pigs and hogs, and it was just a completely different world. And I'm like, I, I couldn't have lived like this. You know? <laughs> right. So, right. so I, I'm, I'm just definitely thankful that they, you know, had the foresight to come up and saw a b- better opportunity for the family and, you know, our, our future generations. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, I really love the story and, and appreciate the call. And I think that going back and seeing that and experiencing that as much as you can is super important um, because as you say it's kind of hard if you grew up in a place like Detroit to really fathom what uh, what life in the south was like for for our families before they came up here and it, it is also I think uh, difficult in some ways to relate to to some of the struggle uh, that that uh, that they endured I, I tell this story a lot now, but my, my father, not even a grandfather, uh, my, gra- my father was born in Mississippi in 1933, and he also joined the military uh, during the Korean War as a way of, you know, trying to get to opportunity that wasn't available where, where he lived for African Americans and in many other places. Uh, he served during the war and came home and still couldn't sit at lunch counters uh, in the town where he had grown up. He, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't buy a house in many places in that town. Uh, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't eligible for the GI Bill, which, uh, which was lifting all kinds of uh, working class families into the middle class after they had served in the military. He couldn't even vote. Uh, as a, a war veteran, he was not allowed to vote. Uh, for another for another fifteen years uh, in the city where where he was born and and you, you think about that you think about that uh, experience uh, Desiree and the things that mm. they that they left but then had to carry with them for the rest of their lives I mean th- these are things that shape all of our realities in such a direct way mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah, what a, a compelling story. My dad's story, I mean, I think that they would have been peers, um, but his story was nothing like that story. You know, when he came out, he was able to access uh, resources. He got um, all but his uh, dissertation for a Ph.D. through um, benefits. Is that right? GI benefit. Wow. Wow. Yeah, um, and it did matter. I, I, it mattered where you lived, right? It mattered what the absolutely yeah. the local yeah. the local laws were like. Wow, 
Exactly. And, and, you know, the enforcement of these rules, the access to the benefits were all, the gatekeepers were all local people who would or wouldn't do it for you. You know, it's like, well, I don't care if it's available. You can't have it, you know, (laughs) but I say all that to say not, not to, not to compare their lives, but to point up the role. And this is something actually, Stephen, I'm going to be researching more. I have a stack of books that I've got to get through and I don't think it's been documented. Well, the role that the military uh, people who enlisted in the military had in the civil rights movement, Mm because we all know the story how the Great Migration started was World War One, yes. when African Americans went to Europe and were treated, got better treatment, came home and wouldn't stand for it. So they were the impetus for a lot of this migration and the civil rights. And then it was doubled down after World War Two, and things still didn't happen. When they came home, they're like, "You're kidding me!" Yes, and kept it going. So you, a lot of the leaders, a lot of the agitators in the civil rights movement were veterans, people who had served. And then you have that same cohort through their service. Some were denied, obviously, like your dad. Some got through, like my dad. But it was an avenue for social mobility, Mm -hmm. a way for them to get an education and for them to pass that down to their kids. So the military was really, you know... You talk about Henry Ford and, and sure. you know, the assembly line. The mili- Uncle Sam, you know, it wasn't all voluntary for Uncle Sam. There was a lot of push and pull there as well. And sure. it wasn't a cakewalk for the enlisted um, mostly men. But that was a huge, huge push toward the civil rights that yeah. we have today was through people that served the country in the military. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to talk about um, the going back south that mm-hmm. uh, that's mm-hmm. also reflected in the themes in in the book, and that's a very personal story uh, for you. Um, let's talk about what you've noticed about going back to Virginia and the way uh, that your friends and peers react to and interpret the the, the reverse migration. <laughs> You know, I think that Mason-Dixon line, it's a real place, but it's also such an emotional, imaginary place. You know, it's like when I was coming to Detroit from Virginia, people are like, wow, you're going up there with all that cold and murder. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I'm in Detroit and I'm coming back, oh, my God, you're going down there with all that uh, humidity and and, um, backwardness. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. there's such a stereotype for both, for Northerners and Southerners. Um, and, you know, I found a ton of racism in Detroit. Sure. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, oh, gosh, I was racism free and now I've crossed the line <laughs> and now it's a... So, I think that we've backed away from each other so much that we're meeting each other, you know, back to back now <laughs> that it's kind of have these and it kind of depends on where you live and what choices you want to make. I, for one, don't want to shovel any more snow and I am perfectly happy with a life in Virginia at this point. I'm grateful for all the years I had in Detroit, but at this period of my life, I like the slower pace and the mm. happier weather. Um yeah. 
And there are so many, I mean, the South is exploding with, uh, with Northerners who are rediscovering the South and making it their own now in ways that they weren't able to do before. You know, there's, an, there's room now for movements to happen. Let's look at what's happening in Georgia and the elections. And, you know, Virginia used to be, uh, oh, my God, a red state, you know, through and through. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, now it's not so much anymore. So, you know, we can't freeze either place in time. And I do think that now that people are moving more freely between the North and South, I think there's just more opportunity for African-Americans to cement their history and their culture and celebrate both in a way that they couldn't before. Yeah. Speaking of the political change that's taking place in Virginia, which I I find fascinating. Uh, And it's, of course, unfolding in fits and starts. And, you know, there are Mm -hmm. leaps forward and then and then incredible yanks backward. But but uh, your book has ended up in part of the bigger political conversation in Virginia. Uh, Talk about how it ended up being part of the discussion about race relations in the in, in the governor's race there. Is that right? Yeah, I I just can't believe this happened. But um, Roanoke, Virginia, is um, it's a, a college town on the far western part. It's on the lip of West Virginia and Tennessee. And evidently, my book ended up at the Roanoke Times, um, and the, an editorial writer opened it and loved the book, but tied it to what's been happening in Virginia under Republican Governor Young. And we went from a Democratic very liberal governor to one that is like just a step distant from Trump, just a step. And so um, he has been, Youngkin is his name, and he has been, um, you know, he's been part of the critical race theory criticisms and and shutting down curriculum and talking about banning books and um, shutting the door for LGBTQ rights. And... So here's an editorial that shows up yesterday, and the writer says, the story in Nothing Special at first seems free of quote-unquote divisive context in the troubling way that Youngkin's administration has defined it. But in the back of the book, journalist and community activist Cooper discusses the great migration that took place, blah, blah, blah. And then... um, He goes down and says, in sharing that family anecdote, Cooper also imparts an important history lesson, one that every Virginia child should know. It's appalling to think that because aspects of that lesson are upsetting, elected officials that share the mindset of the school board in Yunkin might instead prefer to keep the book out of the hands of children. Hmm. Welcome Hmm. to Glenn Yunkin's Virginia. So, you know, I... Everything is political to me, you know, it's political. I think I write about, I try to write about things that are not in the mainstream mindset. And so for me, that's a political act is to bring it forward. Um, But I did not expect to get looped into so quickly, in fact, into this question of critical race race theory and what belongs, what children should be uh, reading and and what they shouldn't. And And, I am... And if I this book, I'll never be so proud. I was going to say, but but I mean, my goodness, if you if you look at this book, um, I, I guess it's just impossible for me to understand how you could see it as divisive. Other than that, 
the you know the the, the characters in it are African American, and maybe maybe people think that's divisive. But but mentioning the Great Migration, I, I just don't see. I mean, I I guess I'm a little confused uh, uh, as to what Aren't what the content all? is. Aren't uh, we all? I mean, there are there are and, things that uh, that that people are objecting to. Um, that I, I I don't agree with, but at least I understand. Um, uh, this right. one this one I, I, is beyond me, I guess. And actually, the um, the migration is only mentioned in the author's note, so it's the book works on a couple of levels. You know, for a little kid, it's just like Grandpa. I'm happy. Let's play. You right. know, right? But, but they happen to be black. I mean, that's always the thing, yeah. right? I, I feel like that's yes. what triggers people is. Uh, yes. Well, these are black people, and I'm not black, so they must be trying to carve out their own space or tell their own story. But I'm not sure. I, I guess I never understand why that's a threat. Um, yeah, it's sad but true. Sad but true. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another. This... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go. Ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm hoping that that a uh, you know a book like this does help transcend. That 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 Mason Dixon line that exists in children's literature. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Desiree Cooper about her book, Nothing Special. We'll continue to hear from you as well on social media and on the phones three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Call and tell us what you learned from your grandparents, what you maybe continue to learn from your grandparents and your interactions with them. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking with Desiree Cooper about her new book, Nothing Special, which examines the really strong ties between uh, generations, uh, especially in the African-American community, how uh, the Great Migration <clears throat> influences those uh, those connections and those relationships, uh, and how the trip back south for so many uh, African-Americans uh, is reflected in those relationships as well. We want to hear from you about your grandparents, uh, what you learned from them, what you take from them. Uh, maybe you are still interacting uh, with your grandparents, lucky enough to have them around. Give us a sense of what you draw from that relationship, what you learn and feel uh, from the things that you that you do with uh, your your grandparents. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will uh, work into the conversation that way. Uh, I want to change the subject just a little, Desiree. Uh, you do so many things, and it's always hard to, to pick which ones to talk about. But uh, you recently <laughs> contributed to an anthology of poems uh, called Choice Words, which is about uh, reproductive rights. I, I, I think uh, it is on everyone's minds right now, given what the Supreme Court did in the spring. Here in Michigan, of course, we have a ballot issue that would enshrine reproductive rights in the Constitution that's uh, on the ballot in in November. But uh, but talk about what you are trying to communicate in the in this 
essay in the end or the poem in this anthology. Um, yeah, you're right. It was an it was an essay um, that has um, the point. Almost every sentence in it is from the point of view of a different woman who's facing the choice of whether or not to continue a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So it runs the gamut of what those choices are. Um, and I think that for too long, um, there's been a focus on the a potential person and not on an existing person. And, and um, I think focusing on the woman who is here and who has to make choices that not only affect herself and her life, but, you know, most of the women who have abortions have already had a child. They already know what they're doing (laughs) and what the balance (laughs) is. They're trying to figure out what may be best for their existing children and their existing family and how that their situation may be precarious or, or threatened um, or their own health. You know, many women are ill and can't get through um, a, a pregnancy, whatever. I, I hate even doing the, the questions about why, because sure. it's not anybody's business. Um, but I do need to say that Choice Words is, uh, it's called Choice Words, Writers on Abortion. It's edited, edited by Annie Finch, a stunning collection that includes um, writers like uh, Gloria Naylor uh, from the Women of Brewster Place. People might rem- remember that. Langston Hughes. Um, it has um, just, you know, from from time, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks, Audre Lloyd, Lord. I mean, these are people who we know from their other works, but they mm-hmm. have written about abortion over time, and so it is. It's a collection that spans time and cultures, and it's not only uh, you know uh, pushing one point of view. It's pushing many points of view of what the universe of things that women consider when they come to have to make this choice. And so that's what I love about it most is humanizing women mm. <laughs> instead mm. of objectifying women as, as vessels. You know, it's like, they're not important. They're just a vessel. So let's just talk about, you know, a future person instead, it, as opposed to like looking at a human being who's alive in a particular place in time in her life and what choices she has in front of her. So it's stunning. Pick it up. It's available at your favorite online retailer or your bookstores. It is. It is. <laughs> I really hope you get a copy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Harriet in Detroit. Welcome to the show. Are you there, Harriet? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I'm part of what I'll call the other great migration. My grandparents came from Europe and could never go back and never would want to go back because <laughs> anti-Semitism was you know, as bad, if not worse, as in terms of the world. It wasn't worse or better than what was happening in the South. But I'd just like to compliment both the author and the uh, artist, Beck Sloan and Desiree, because the two things together really make this book special and help people understand, adults as well as children. It's an art book with a good story. It's it's a storybook with a wonderful illustrations because it captures something personal that goes beyond 
place and space, but is really important for everyone, not just African Americans, to understand what we now call the Great Migration. And they need to get it at their favorite bookstore and know that Wayne State University Press was the publisher. Yes, Desiree, yes. thank you for doing this book. I am giving it to every young person I know <laughs> who has grandparents that they may yeah. or may not even be able to visit. So, so that their parents will talk about those people if they can't visit them. Yeah. So, so Harriet, uh, I, I love the call and the and the comments. Uh, you you don't seem to have a hard time relating to the book because uh, the characters are African American, or the story is rooted in in the African American narrative. I mean, I, I, your experience is different, but that doesn't somehow put the story beyond your reach. It works. It works beautifully. It adds a level of emotional knowledge to anybody who looks it through or who reads it. Yeah, Harriet, I I really appreciate uh, the call and the and the comments. Thanks so much, uh, Desiree. Before before we have to to end, we've got a few minutes left, but I, I want to go back to 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 a, a a moment in time, I guess that that we all experience with our grandparents, which is when they die. Um, mm-hmm. When my grandfather died, uh, it was, he was the first person I knew. Who died, mm-hmm. and and he had been such an important uh, figure in my life. I mean, he was really like a, a third parent, uh, and I just remember the devastation I felt uh, at that moment. I was I was eleven, I think, or twelve. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk about your your uh, your dad's death and and how that affected Jacks, uh, given the, the, the closeness of their relationship. Yeah, well, oh, that that's a hard one because he he did die during COVID and we could not have um, the send-off that we would have wished. Um, right. And we did not um, have the children um, come out because we were still in the throes of, you know, the height of the pandemic. And so... Um, after the funeral, um, the family gathered together at my house, and I had put together a slideshow of um, of Jacks in particular, but the kids just and their their great grandfather, just so that we could like just sit and go through like a photo album and um, talk about him and what we'll miss. So that was our way of doing that, but. To come, keep looking at my Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> I put the book in Jax's hand. He had not seen the book. And so and it had taken years for it to evolve. So Jax mm. is now nine. He was around six when I started this. To look at the pages and react to them. And it is just, he's so, so happy to see those pictures and see their friendship in yeah. the pages. And he's laughing and, and pointing at things and talking about what he really did uh, with his grandfather. So great grandfather. Yeah. So um, it's been a wonderful way to memorialize the great parts and keep that memory alive. And, you know, he won't have that memory of going to a funeral and viewing a body in the, in the casket, which is a way of closure. But for him, it's more of the end of a storybook. And yeah. this book kind of keeps it going. Yeah. So I kind of appreciate that, too. Yeah. Okay, Desiree Cooper, always so great to have you here. And congratulations on Nothing Special. Thank you. 
Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. We will be back on Monday when we're going to talk about what is going on in Dearborn, where they are talking about book banning in the libraries. Uh, really interesting issue, really interesting conversation coming up. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.